Blog Talk Radio. just a taste of Brother Zappa's peaches and regalia. And with that, (laughs) I would like to bring you the charming, the talented, the politically insightful Miss Brooke Hines. Brooke, take it away. Well, hello and welcome another Sunday evening with Progressive News Network. I want to make sure that everybody is aware uh, of our schedule tonight. We've changed a few things up. Janine Moloff is going to come on at 7.30 with a uh, report on the giant swastika uh, that was unfurled at the Bernie Sanders rally and how that was received and not received on in corporate media and on social media. And we also have Edwin and Siso uh, in a part in the second part of a two-part interview on the electoral process. He'll be following Janine at eight o'clock, and then at eight thirty, we've got an interview with a uh, poet and storyteller from Dublin, Ireland. Kevin, am I pronouncing this right? Kevin Keeley or Kevin yep. Kiley? Okay, yep. Keeley. Kevin Keeley. Uh, so stay tuned for that. He'll, Keely will be on uh, approximately at 8.30, and he's talking about the mavens and gatekeepers of culture. But I'm Biting here. the hand that feeds him. Don't we all? That's, <laughs> that's how you know people are being truthful. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to go over a few things this week. Looking forward to um, the primaries that are coming up this Tuesday on the 10th. We have, of course, um, Michigan. We have Washington State. We have, I'm pulling up mine. Here we go. We have Idaho, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Democrats abroad. Of course, Michigan of, of all of these, Michigan and Washington are the two big uh, delegate counts, the two big states that, that people want to win. Uh, Michigan has 125 delegates and Washington has 89 delegates. But more than delegates, Michigan is about the firewall. It's about the Rust Belt states. It's about labor and it's about uh, workers. And so Michigan, as you'll remember in 2016, 
primary was a big upset for Bernie Sanders, and uh, yeah, I think that there was some notion that that, that Bernie was going to win Michigan because on the morning of the Michigan primary, uh, the Washington Post famously published 16 negative articles in 16 hours, uh, actually starting the evening before. Uh, so somebody had had a notion that things were going sideways in, in Michigan, even though uh, a lot of the polling was um, favorable to was more favorable to Hillary Clinton. It seemed like it was going to be more even Stephen than it than it was. And Bernie pulled out a big win back in 2016. So uh, I wanted to kind of close the book on. Well, I wanted to talk about how it's going to be difficult to close the book on Super Tuesday. So we've got we've got some research that's happening now. One really good uh, source is TDMS Research at TDMSResearch.com. They've been doing some excellent analysis of uh, exit polls versus. Uh, reported vote count, uh, and then the um, proportionality and and comparing the two uh, against a margin of error. Now, this is a separate issue. I'm going to talk about exit polling versus the actual vote totals. This is a separate issue from voter suppression, which is what we saw in California and Texas. When people have to wait seven hours to vote, and there's only five machines that work for Democrats and 25 machines in the building for the Republicans who have an unopposed primary, then something is, something is, a, is wrong, deeply wrong. Nobody should be uh, expected to wait in a line in the middle of the week on a Tuesday seven hours to vote. There were people who were still in line in Los Angeles, California after midnight after the polls close. So it, it, it's, it, that's voter suppression, and that is a, a whole other issue. There's a story that broke yesterday about uh, there's 44 voting uh, tabulator machines, the, the actual uh, ballot marking machines, in Dallas County alone in Texas that they can't account for. So there is a lot of uh, question about what's going on in Texas, of course, what's going on in California is they've got three and a quarter million, three and a quarter million votes that are still not counted in California, uh, and we're getting ready to have another primary, you know, in two days, in, in about 48 hours. So that's the whole reason to have electronic voting. Supposedly, is that you get the vote count sooner, and uh, California famously had instituted this new, wildly expensive uh, electronic voting menace, <laughs> machine menace, and uh, and it turns out that, that they still can't they still can't count. You know, given the, the most expensive calculators in the world, they still can't get these ballots counted. So that's voter suppression. What I want to talk about, though, and what TDMS research it has been reporting on, is that there are actual tallies that came out of New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Massachusetts 
that uh, there is such a disparity between the exit polls and the actual electoral re reports that if this was, if these were elections in a country that USAID was monitoring, this would definitely trigger an audit. These are these are that wild. Now, the one that is the most uh, egregious is in Massachusetts, where we saw a, a net gain and loss from exit polls of 16.2%. And what that looks like, what that means is that uh, in all of these cases, it looks like uh, Bernie Sanders lost about 8% and uh, Joe Biden or Bloomberg gained from that, from that uh, uh, loss. So, you know, it, it's interesting that, that, the, uh, that the margins are, are, are so similar. Here's a, here's a paragraph from, from one of the stories. The discrepancies between the exit poll and the vote count for Sanders and Biden totaled 8.4%, which is double the 4% margin of error for the exit poll differences. So if you've got a margin of error of 4% and your exit polls are showing a discrepancy of 8.x% on either side of a candidate, uh, that 8 point such percent uh, gets counted twice, essentially, because the votes come from one candidate and they go to another. So that makes a total error of 16-some percent. Uh, this would forget a, a triggering an audit. This kind of dis discrepancy in a Latin American country would trigger a coup. You know, we would invade Venezuela if there was a 16-point swing from exit polls to actual re reported tallies. <clears throat> so Massachusetts is a mess. There's some uh, discussion about ACLU getting involved in lawsuits in Massachusetts and Minnesota. Uh, so far, I haven't seen anything uh, reported on that yet. Um, here's, a, here's a sense of, of the scale that we're talking about. Given the 1,397,000 voters in this election, uh, Biden gained 65,200 more votes than projected by the exit poll. Bloomberg increased his vote share by 29% and approximately uh, approximately 36,900 more votes than projected. So Bloomberg is gaining about half as many votes as, as Biden is in these uh, in these tallies versus the exit polls. And interestingly enough, you know the the lion's share of the uh, discrepancies come from. Bernie's column. Now we saw this in real time happening in Iowa. We saw how the, and this is one of the reasons why, one of the arguments why caucuses are more transparent and more accountable because everybody sees everything as it's happening. And when there starts to be funny business with the, with the counting, everybody can chime in and say, hey, that's not what happened at, at our caucus. Those are not the numbers that we sent to you. Why do those numbers not line up? In a primary, of course, you know, we have a, a secret ballots and, you know, nobody really knows once your votes go in, if they come back out. In the United States, too, uh, of all uh, 
uh, leading industrialized, you know, modern countries. Let me see. Let me find the statistic. Um, the uh, confidence in confidence in U.S. elections is lower than it is in Germany, Norway, Netherlands, France, Canada, U.K., Ireland, Italy, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland. Uh, people in those countries generally to the tune of about uh, 89%. Here it is. <clears throat> According to a recent Gallup World Poll, only 40% of Americans say they are confident in the honesty of U.S. elections, while those countries I just mentioned had a uh, confidence of 89% in the honesty and integrity of their elections. So uh, real quickly, I just want to mention South Carolina and New Hampshire uh, in, in this. In New Hampshire, remember, that was before uh, Buttigieg dropped out. And very oddly, most of the swing in New Hampshire was to Buttigieg's uh, uh, Benefit. So he saw an uh, almost a 12-point swing from exit polling to the votes that were reported on election day. Uh, a 12-point increase in that projected vote. Those exit polls had a margin of error of 2.5 percent. Right. So it, 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 and that makes sense in a small state like New Hampshire. There is only Oh my gosh, it was only like 80-some thousand people were, oh yeah, 298,000 total voters in that election, and Buttigieg gained approximately 8,000 more votes than had been predicted. So you, it's easy to get a smaller margin of error when it's a smaller universe of votes, and you're, you're dealing with, with fewer, uh, uh, less, less quantity to, uh, to err on. South Carolina now, South Carolina benefited um, uh, uh, Biden to the tune of 8.3%, and their exit polls were, the margin of error there was supposed to be around 2.8% to 3.4%, depending on where the exit polls were taken. Uh, so again, you saw votes be taken from um, taken from Sanders and pushed over into the Biden column. Sanders lost 6.6%. Uh, Biden gained 8.3%. There was also quite a bit of votes, it looks like, that uh, left the Tulsi Gabbard column, the Amy Klobuchar column, and the Elizabeth Warren column. But in terms of the total number, it's uh, far more on the Bernie Sanders column. So these are just things to look out for going forward. We do, I think, have a, um, a little ways to go before this is all settled. Uh, just today, Jesse Jackson endorsed uh, Bernie Sanders in Michigan. And, you know, this was quite a... Uh, momentous occasion. Jesse Jackson is, for those who don't know, he was a, a, a close uh, confidant and a close um, 
political ally of Martin Luther King, and he was standing next to Martin Luther King when he was shot in Memphis. Jesse Jackson was the uh, head of the Rainbow Coalition that uh, uh, he ran for president in 1984 and 1988. I cast my very first vote for Jesse Jackson in 1984, and his, his tagline, um, Keep Hope Alive, is you know part of what Obama was playing off of with, with Hope and Change. So Jesse Jackson is is so woven in to the cultural fabric of the Democratic Party and of party activists that it, it's it's really hard to uh, overstate uh, how how much impact Jesse Jackson has had and can have in terms of an endorsement. So. Uh, I want to let you know that there's there, if you're really interested in this Jesse Jackson stuff, check out Ryan Grimm's writing in The Intercept. He just did a piece that was published today. Rainbow Coalition comes full circle as Jesse Jackson endorses Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders endorsed Jesse Jackson way back in 1984 and, of course, in 1988. And, you know, he was one of the few, kind of the same way that, that Alan Grayson was one of the few who supported um, Bernie Sanders' run in 2016, Bernie Sanders was one of the few uh, Democrats in Congress that supported uh, uh, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. Actually, I don't think it was in Congress yet, just yet, in 84. Um, <clears throat> so Jesse Jackson, if you're interested in this, uh, Jeremy Scahill did a fantastic interview with Jesse Jackson on uh, Intercepted Podcast. And check that out. It was two weeks ago or a week ago, I think. And he was one of two or three interviews on that show. Uh, so definitely uh, pull that up and check that out. And Ryan Grimm, who is also uh, at The Intercept wrote this fabulous article about the full circle of Jesse Jackson endorsing Bernie Sanders. Now, Jesse Jackson is suffering from Parkinson's disease, and it is really difficult for him to speak, and, and especially to speak in front of a crowd. Like, Parkinson's is, is one of those uh, diseases that uh, creates habit with one's ability to communicate effectively and to also, you know, stand straight and not shake and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's in, especially impressive to me that Jesse Jackson got out and did this endorsement today. Uh, just as a sign of how important this is, you know, we're always told that, that, that Twitter doesn't reflect real life, but um, uh, today when Jesse Jackson endorsed and the, um, and the uh, announcement was made, Jesse Jackson started trending on Twitter. Right now we've got, we're up to 86,000 tweets on Jesse Jackson's endorsement, and <clears throat> 
you know, today was also expected to be a big day for Kamala Harris because Kamala Harris is uh, endorsing uh, um, Joe Biden. And the last time I looked, Kamala Harris on Twitter, there was a total of some 3,000 tweets. So 80-some thousand, 86,000 versus 3,000. Uh, in terms of the uh, excitement and the engagement that is coming off of these, these endorsements, I think you've got a sense of which one is more culturally significant. Now, we'll see what, what happens in Michigan. Uh, it's uh, um, Michigan was has been left in the dust with uh, Flint and the water crisis. You know, Obama famously, uh, and this, this was covered in Michael Moore's movie, 11-9, uh, uh, Trump, or uh, something, Apocalypse 11-9, <laughs> End of the World. Um, and uh, it, it, which is a surprisingly good movie. I, I mean, just, just in terms of a documentary. And I think one of Michael Moore's best pieces. And he does, he follows uh, activists in Flint, Michigan, where Obama, everyone found out, oh, Obama's going to come speak. And people have been, you know, trying to do something about the water. Their kids are all getting lead poisoning. And and, you know, people can't bathe and they can't use the water out of their faucets and they're still being charged for water. Uh, and it's a terrible situation. Like, oh, my God, this is great. Barack Obama is going to come. He's going to do something. And Barack Obama came and did a rally and did this whole, like, jokey thing where he said, um, I'm, I'm really thirsty. Somebody get me a glass of water. I'm really, really thirsty. And uh, I'm thirsty, too. And... Uh, and he took a drink of water to the to the absolute horror of everyone in the audience, and then did it again at a press conference in front of uh, you know different CEOs and lobbyists. So the corporate wing of the Democratic Party might have ruined themselves in terms of being able to pull out a win in Michigan. I think that's what uh, a lot of people are looking for on Tuesday. We'll see. We'll see if that happens. Um, but regardless, this is a very big endorsement. Uh, Jesse Jackson's and Wednesday or Tuesday is a very big, well, Wednesday is going to be the day when the, when, that, that we'll all be talking. Now, I know last week that I said that I would do a show, an extra after um, Super Tuesday, and I was just telling uh, Rick here that I threw my back out on Monday. Like, I just threw it out. I am pretty much, this is the first time I've really been sitting up and feeling okay in about a week. So I haven't, I wasn't able to do a show after Super Tuesday, but I promise I will do a show this Wednesday after the primaries. Uh, it, it looks like things are getting a little bit better. In my last moment, I just want to say there is, a, I didn't get to this, but check out this article in the New York Times about Eric Prince recruiting ex-spies to infiltrate liberal groups. So they're using the Eric Prince, who is Blackwater, who is uh, Betsy DeVos's, uh, a brother, Betsy DeVos is the Secretary of Education. She employed Eric Prince and uh, uh, James O'Keefe, or they were in the employ, to spy on 
uh, Randy Weingarten's uh, American Teacher American Federation of Teachers in Michigan. Uh, so they recorded conversations and infiltrated and so on and so forth. Just horrific, terrible things. There's one really funny piece in this article that I've got in front of me from Truth Day where um, Prince, Eric Prince, wanted to, was trying to train James O'Keefe and these Project Veritas trolls in how to be military uh, equipped uh, counterintelligence, counterinsurgency spies, and all this stuff. And they uh, employed this, this operative, this military intelligence operative, whose name is Euripides Rubio Jr., to teach them how to, to train them and teach them how to be good spies. And he quit after just like two weeks because he was like, he said, there's, there's a really good quote in here somewhere. He was like, they're, they're, oh, here it is. The Veritas group wasn't capable of learning, is what Euripides Rubio Jr. had to say about uh, O'Keefe and, and those guys. And, you know, this is after O'Keefe posted a, a picture of himself on social media with a, holding a handgun and a silencer attached, wearing tactical clothing, and describing that uh, he was out at a ranch at a classified location where he was learning, quote, Spying and self-defense in an effort to make Project Veritas, quote, the next great intelligence agency, unquote. So there you have it. There is the Trump administration participating in uh, quasi-military intelligence operations having to do with uh, policymaking in the United States. And, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see if they are engaging in these kinds of operations in the election, you know, because that's just right around the corner uh, in November. I have a question for you. I just uh, this evening saw a story that the the anti-science crowd uh, in the administration have decided that uh, they don't believe this is very serious, so they're going to keep holding mass rallies. (laughs) Oh, oh, the COVID uh, coronavirus. Yes, they they've decided that this is uh, you know, it's another one of those science conspiracies, and uh, <laughs> that uh, we need to blame. Uh, let's see, uh, uh, we need to blame Obama and uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Jimmy Carter, and I think we're blaming all the way down to uh, to JFK. So, uh, with that in mind. The anti-science oh crowd may just cure themselves. Thanks so much, well, Brooke. You know, no better way to, to to do this than to gather everyone together in a in a tight room where people are are, are spitting in each other's faces with rage to you know let everyone know that there's no such thing as a virus that's being spread around. I love. Well, it. thank you so very much, my dear. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. All righty. Bye bye. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our justice correspondent, Ms. Janine Moloff. Janine, welcome. Thank you, Rick. Well, I'm just going to get straight into it. Just this past week, the nation watched as protesters attacked the two remaining Democratic presidential contenders, namely the corporate DNC-anointed one, Joe Biden, and the champion for the political left, Bernie Sanders. Now, the two incidents and the subsequent treatment each received from the corporate-owned press are quite different in terms of 
actual danger and the perceived and presented danger by that same corporate-owned press corp. It was reported on every mainstream news outlet that Jill Biden tussled with a dangerous vegan protester who jumped on the stage wielding a lar- wielding an 8 by 11 paper sign. The second lady, Jill Biden, shoved the protester, and the corporate media ran with the story like basically Jill Biden was the second coming of Xena, warrior princess, protecting her man from a bloodthirsty vegan. The next day, inside a Bernie rally in Phoenix, home to Sheriff Arpeo, Arpeo the concentration camp sheriff, no, no chart uh, coincidence, a white supremacist unfurled a Nazi flag bearing the swastika. Though there's no research documenting vegan violence, white supremacists have been a major source of terrorist violence, especially against blacks, Hispanics, Jews, and Muslims, and that's documented including by the FBI. Media coverage of the Nazi threat to Bernie was downplayed and attributed to the actions of a single disturbed individual. Many media outlets failed to cover the Bernie incident at all, while the Jill Biden Xena Warrior Princess meme went viral. The fact that Jill Biden and her husband are white Christians only underscores how the United States is a sense of historic amnesia regarding our history of virulent racism and religious bigotry. The two stories were presented as a false equivalent, and that only further supports this historic amnesia and denial among whites. Joe Biden has a history of appeasing the far right, and so does the DNC. For three long years, the DNC was eerily silent to the criminal incitement that Trump brought until the political left made it an issue. Below is the coverage, and I'm going to speak about the coverage that Bernie received for this story that did represent a potentially credible mortal threat. The Washington Post actually did a pretty good job as it reported that a white supremacist interrupted a Bernie Sanders rally by flying a large Nazi swastika flag behind Bernie. Bernie could possibly be the first Jewish president. It's well known in D.C. that his father lost most of their family in the Holocaust. This was not a coincidence. So let's look at the coverage and then consider the very American roots of white supremacy and neo-Nazism. The Washington Post, Allison Chu wrote, and here's the headline, this is absolutely abhorrent, Nazi flag at Sanders rally sparks outcry and concerns about safety. And, you know, once again, Bernie came on the stage, there were cheers, and the cheers were replaced by literally deafening boos when the Sanders supporters saw the swastika flag and basically, you know, they escorted him out very quickly. They got rid of the flag. Uh, Brianna Westbrook, a national surrogate for the Sanders campaign, told the Washington Post that she never thought she would see a swastika at a political event. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not surprised. And, again, the people nearby ripped the item out of the man's hands. But, once again, this moment was captured in videos and photos that circulated all through every aspect of social media. And yet... It wasn't. It did not receive as much coverage as Jill Biden's little tussle, and that is significant. Um, you know, once again, I can't say I'm shocked, but Common Dreams reported as well. And again, they reported, you know, this idea of saying all people's conscience must condemn this anti-Semitism against the most visible Jewish politician in the country. End quote. The group of young liberal reform Jews, if not now, basically. Uh, said that, quote, absolutely sickening and scary to see someone proudly brandishing a Nazi flag at a Bernie rally tonight, end quote. Uh, You know, once again, I'm not really surprised. 
There are shadows of Trump incitement because later in the night it was reported that other people who were waving banners that had Trump's name on it got into some fights with Sanders supporters. And those particular Trump supporters were eventually removed by uniformed officers. But once again, uh, they left the outside the venue. They shouted the N-word at a black Sanders supporter. Uh, you know, once again, activist Stacey Walker tweeted, hanging a swastika at the rally of a presidential candidate who was Jewish and had family executed by Nazis during the Holocaust is disturbing and threatening, end quote. Now, The Hill downplayed the incident in their headline. They attributed this Nazi threat as the actions of a disturbed protester. This man wasn't disturbed. He was an evil neo-Nazi. We shouldn't have to listen to such drivel that pushes really a false equivalent. But that is exactly how they presented it. Uh, one man known by his stance grounded tweeted, quote, a white supremacist raised the Nazi flag at a Bernie rally. Bernie Sanders is a Jewish man whose family was slaughtered by Nazis during the Holocaust. His identity matters. You don't have to support him to show some empathy and solidarity against the state, end quote. And he's right. Now, it's been noted that uh, in the Hill article, there's been a rise in anti-Semitic crimes and actions uh, in the United States and documented by a number of agencies, including the FBI. And basically, it's corresponded with Trump being in office. No shock there. Uh, once again, though, there is a significant difference between the way that the two incidences were handled. Why is it that when Jill Biden is confronted by a vegan protester wielding a paper 8 by 11 sign, she and her husband are possibly in mortal danger by that evil vegan, when a Jewish candidate is assaulted by and threatened by a neo-Nazi, the assailant is dubbed as disturbed. He wasn't disturbed. He chose an evil political philosophy. Jill Biden's little skirmish with that vegan protester has been totally blown out of proportion by the corporate media. While Bernie has been systematically smeared by the DNC and been threatened by neo-Nazis throughout, Jill pushed the protester out of the way of her husband. The protester wasn't armed, except with a sign that the infotainment idiots have painted her as the second coming again of Xena warrior princess protecting her man. Meanwhile, the corporate media like the Hill portrays the neo-Nazi as a disturbed individual. And again, they know what they're doing. The Southern Poverty Law Center has reported the number of hate groups that, has op- that are operating in the U.S. has rose to a record high, but over 1,000 in 2018. And President Trump, they attributed that the Southern Poverty Law Center has said President Trump continues to basically incite this particular bigotry, and he does it through resentment over immigration and the idea of changing demographics. Again, no shock here. And too many people are acting as if this is something new. We're not, and they're totally shocked by it. They shouldn't be. Uh, you know, once again, the, uh, the uh, we have a, a majority of hate groups here, including the neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, racist skinheads, neo-Confederates, and white nationalists. Um, we have so many hate groups, it's not even funny. Now, why is this significant? What does this have to do with deep American roots? everything. In the Atlantic, there was a story by uh, a staff writer, Adam Serwer, and it's titled White Nationalism's Deep American Roots, and it ran in 2019. And he starts out with Robert Bowers, who's the synagogue murderer, and basically 
Bowers wanted everyone to know why he did it. To quote Bowers, quote, I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered, end quote. And this is what Bowers posted on Gap before he entered the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh on October 27th and gunned down and murdered 11 worshipers. He wanted all Jews to die, and that's what he declared when he was treated for wounds. Powers talked about alleged white genocide. Uh, he invoked the specter of white Americans facing this, this mysterious genocide. He also mentioned Hyatt, which is a Jewish American refugee support group who tries to bring, you know, tries to help out migrant uh, immigrants from all over. Um, he basically, you know, talked. To, he accused of Hyatt, this Jewish American refugee group, of, of bringing in quote invaders. In that kill our people. This sounds a lot like Trump's incitement when he called Mexicans a bunch of murderers and drug dealers. Uh, you know, once again, Pittsburgh synagogue murders also took place a few days before the 80th anniversary of Kristallnacht. And Kristallnacht launched the official Holocaust during Hitler's reign. And I don't think this was an accident at all. And what Bowers was saying was basically this refrain that, again, Donald Trump has incited. Now, what does this have to do with the history? Americans want to believe this neo-Nazism is a byproduct of deranged individuals and not the result of systemic white supremacy in the U.S. Furthermore, the corporate media feeds this self-imposed delusion using false equivalences between true dangers faced by minorities, racial and religious minorities, and the triviality of Jill Biden shoving a vegan protester who was again holding a paper sign and not an automatic weapon like those Jews in the synagogue face. If the media gave Jill skirmish far more attention than the Nazi banner unfurled behind Bernie at a rally in Phoenix. Americans want to believe in their innocence, and it's just not true. You know, again, we have Trump talking about, quote, shithole countries. The fact is, this crude bigotry of Trump's also serves as a dangerous tool to incite additional violence while the alleged nice white people or white supremacists turn away. You know, we laugh at Fox, but this stream of racist or religiously, inc- religiously bigoted incitement is effective and dangerous. You can't separate the constant historic slander spewing from the Fox mouthpieces from the deadly attacks like the Pittsburgh synagogue murders or the state-sanctioned murders of black youth such as Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and others. Racist and religious slander has consequences, and those consequences are often criminally fatal. And the fact is, you've got Laura Ingraham. Uh, you know, again, she, has, she uses an inferred slander where she talks about how immigrants are overrunning massive rem- demographic changes, and, quote, to quote her, the America we know and love doesn't exist anymore. This inferred slander coming from Ingraham, is it really ignorant, as it's been called out, or is it systemic racist slander directly linking to crimes against minorities? I choose the latter. It is slander. Uh, the idea of white genocide that Bowers talked about is not new, and it's not limited to the Deep South. Uh, the greatest generation was also, also guilty. Um, the fact is, you've got U.S. Congressman Steve King. He doesn't understand the ideas of white nationalism, white supremacy, and Western. He doesn't understand how those are offensive. And apparently the entire segment of history, which included the genocide of indigenous 
North American tribes, followed by the slavery of blacks and the indignities of Jim Crow. In addition, the actual genocide of six million Jewish men and women and children was far too obtuse for his Midwestern gray matter. I don't know, maybe he ingested too much fertilizer. The point is, the very American history behind the language of white supremacy and ultimately the language of Nazism under Hitler came from an American source. The idea of Hitler's ultimate goal, namely the domination of a pure white Aryan race, again, came from an American source. And that American source was an American lawyer and an author named Madison Grant. Madison Grant is basically the author of The Nordic Race and the Evil of Eugenics. And he wrote a book that became Hitler's Eugenics Bible. And that was termed by Hitler himself. Hitler referred to to Grant's book as his Bible. Grant's doctrine um, has been since rejuvenated, and now it's called White Genocide. The term genocide really hadn't been coined in Grant's day. Um, The alt-right neo-Nazi Richard Spencer also cites from Madison Grant, um, and basically in an, an introduction to a 2013 edition of another of Grant's works, Spencer warned that, quote, one possible outcome of this ongoing demographic transformation is a thoroughly miscongenated and thus homogeneous assimilated nature, nation, which would have little resemblance to the white America that came before it. And uh, this author in The Atlantic said that language is vintage Grant. Now, Madison Grant isn't well known these days outside of white supremacist circles, but only because of a recoil against the Nazi attacks on American democracy are white Christians and not due to any any sudden moral epiphany. So basically, a lot of Americans forgot about it, and, uh, you know, again, the biggest know about it. There's another historian named Jonathan Peter Spiro, uh, an American. He's the author of, quote, Defending the Master Race, Conservation Eugenics, and the Legacy of Madison Grant, which was published in 09, and he described a backlash this way, quote, even though the Germans had been directly influenced by Madison Grant and the American eugenics movement, when we fought Germany, because Germany was racist, racist, racism became unacceptable in America. Our enemy is racist, therefore we adopt anti-racism as our creed, end quote. So who is Madison Grant? Well, he came from old money. He did not come from the East South. He was born in Manhattan. He attended Yale and Columbia Law School, all right? He opened a law practice on Wall Street in the 1890s when this wave of immigration in Southern and Eastern Europe was happening. And apparently it upset him. And his biggest, the, the group that he hated the most happened to be Jews. Um, and, and again, he just kept his, Grant was accusing Jews of stealing the white, to quote him, the white man's name and taking their women. End quote. Sounds a lot like the racist tones of southern whites against black men, if you ask me. Now, race science in Europe, it wasn't just Grant. He wasn't the first proponent. There was a French author named Joseph Arthur de Gaudot, who first identified the Aryan race. Uh, You've got William Ripley, who also spoke about this race science, which, again, isn't science at all. The grant blended these racial, this racial and religious slander in a pseudo-scholarly veneer, and that's what made Grant even more dangerous. And so he did single out Jews as one of his biggest uh, irritations. And this was uh, something that Grant 
you know, to croak ranties and quotes, the cross between a white man and an Indian is an Indian, the cross between a white man and a Negro is a Negro, the cross between a white man and a Hindu is a Hindu, and the cross between any of the three European races and a Jew is a Jew, end quote. The grant blended racial and religious slander. And, you know, his work lacks scientific rigor. We, we know that. Um, but, again, his racism found stands among very high-placed Americans, including several presidents, among which Teddy Roosevelt and Warren Harding. They were avid fans. Uh, Warren Harding basically, and Calvin Coolidge. Uh, Calvin Coolidge wrote that Grant's thesis was compelling, and he wrote, quote, there are racial considerations too grave to be brushed aside for any sentimental reasons. Biological laws tell us that certain divergent people will not mix or blend, end quote. And this was in an article for Good Housekeeping in 1921. And so, Basically, this is something that proves that racism is not exclusive to the South. Old money families were equally bigoted. They just hid behind pseudo uh, scholarships. Uh, and then it goes on. And when you see the, the connection to um, not only the racism, the, the Immigration Act of 1924, which again limited uh, immigrants of color and from Southern and Eastern Europe as well as well as Jews, but then you go a little further and you talk about how Hitler emulated the racism of the U.S. So Hitler was quoted by the New York Times, uh, quote, it was America that taught us as a nation, it was America that taught us a nation should not open its doors equally to all nations. And that was one year before Hitler was elevated to chancellor in 1933. And Hitler also noted but the U.S., quote, simply excludes the immigration of certain races. In these respects, America always pays obeisance, at least in tentative first steps, to the characteristic Volkish conception of the state, end quote. And basically, you know, Hitler was a big fan of Madison Grant. Um, he wasn't the only one. There were other American eugenicists that were given awards by Hitler uh, via Heidelberg University and Goethe University. Uh, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who wrote The Passing of the Great Race, uh, Leon Whitney, who wrote The Case for Sterilization. So, you know, once again, the Nazis really thought the American model went beyond just eugenics. They were really very excited about what was called the systemic degradation of Jim Crow, the idea that Americans deprive basic rights of citizenship to ethnic minorities. Nazi lawyers carefully studied how the United States, um, even though they, they gave the pretense of equal citizenship, they really denied that status to those who were not fully, fully white. Um, they, the Nazis looked at Supreme Court decisions that withheld full citizenship rights from non-white citizens. Um, the Nazis reviewed, as we know, the infamous one-drop rule. Um, and so Grant you know, his book, The Passing of the Great Race, you know, Madison Grant, in short, argued that, one, the Negro slave was an unfortunate cousin of the white man, and I'm just going to quote, quote, deeply tanned by the tropic sun and denied the blessings of Christianity and civilization, played no small part with the sentimentalists of the Civil War period, and it has taken us 50 years to learn that speaking English, wearing good clothes, and going to school and to church do not transform a Negro into a white man, end quote. This is so, it's such classic Nazism, it's not even funny. 
Madison Grant also attacked the 14th Amendment. You know, again, his attitude about the 14th Amendment was the idea, he, he really believed the Declaration of Independence was was wrong in the idea that all men were created equal because Madison Grant maintained predictably that the white man was more equal than the others. And then Grant's final project, according to another eugenicist Spiro uh, wrote, was basically an, an effort to organize a hunting expedition was daring. Here's the thing. The U.S. has always had a racist immigration code. And the reason I spent so much time on Madison Grant was to show that basically you can't separate white supremacy from neo-Nazism. The reason why Hitler went after the Jews as well as the Slavs and some others is because Jews in Europe were not regarded as truly white. And that's something a lot of Americans do not understand, including people in my own Jewish community. America, the U.S. has always grappled. They've always had a racist immigration code. The myth is that we are the champion of the poor and the dispossessed and that we draw strength from pluralism and, and diversity. The myth of racist white supremacists is that Americans' greatness is the result of white and Christian origin and not this diversity. The fact is both groups are, are wrong. Um, and it started to be repaired a little bit with the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 because that eradicated the racial definition of American identity that was basically deeply involved in the 1924 immigration law. But here's the other thing, too. The truth about the greatest generation, World War II, is you will hear Americans say, we had white Christians that fought for you Jews. I've been told this before. The truth is that the Nazis were really perplexed. Um, they were, they really underestimated, according to this writer, the American commitment to democracy. Colombian historian Ira Castleman wrote in a book, Here Itself, The New Deal and the Origins of Our Time in 2013, that while the South remained hawkish, you know, regarding Nazi Germany, because again, white supremacists didn't, because they remained hawkish against Nazi Germany because white supremacists didn't want to live under what they considered to be a fascist government. And what they wanted, according to this writer, was called a Heronvolk democracy, which bottom line said white people were free and full citizens and non-whites were. And the category of non-whites included non-Christians, such as Jews and Muslims and Hindus. And then there's a Hitler quote to the New York Times. Again, it was the, again, the American cause that the nation should not open its doors deeply to all nations. And so these soldiers that fought there they were really fighting for this idea of white privilege, basically. Uh, Madison Grant racism echoes now in the Trump administration and the studios of Fox. Frankly, it's there in the studios of all mainstream media. They consistently paint a picture of false equivalence between the voices of resurgent Nazism and white supremacy and the claims of the political left. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the fact is, we have this situation, and when I look to the young people, you know, in in Ferguson, for instance, unwittingly, they nailed it. Um, and, it and I'm going to get to that in a minute. The writer of this piece of The Atlantic, uh, Adam Serwer, also spoke about how mainstream media downplays white supremacy. To quote Serwer, most benignly intentioned mainstream media coverage of demographic change in the U.S. 
and a tendency to portray as justified the fear and anger of white Americans who believe their political power is threatened by immigration, as though the political views of today's newcomers were determined by genetic inheritance rather than persuasion. And he goes on to say more. Quote, the danger of Grantism, Madison Grant, and its implications for both America and the world is very real. Um, and, and basically, the source of greatest danger has been those which use white purity over a diverse democracy. When Americans abandon their commitment to pluralism, the world notices and catastrophe follows, end quote. And this article was published in 2019. So the mainstream media portrayed in conclusion Jill Biden is heroic for pushing a vegan protester wielding a piece of paper off the stage. The alleged danger to the Bidens was little more than an inconvenience. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders, the first Jewish person to come this close to the presidency, the man who lost much of his family to the Holocaust, has been threatened by neo-Nazis every step of this campaign and the, and the one in 2016. Remember, during the 2016 campaign, Trump himself retweeted a Nazi meme, showing himself in a Nazi Gestapo uniform, smiling gleefully as he was about to flip the switch and gasp a cartoon version of Bernie Sanders, who was wearing the uniform of a Jewish concentration camp prisoner, a yellow star emblazoned. Trump thought it was funny. That level of evil indifference did not develop through osmosis. The white supremacy and racism in this nation has deep roots and pervades our entire society. Furthermore, Hitler built his murder machine on this racist philosophy. You cannot separate racism and white supremacy from Nazism. They are the same. I will say it again. You cannot separate racism and white supremacy from Nazism. They are one and the same. The white Christian soldiers fought the Nazis in World War II. They largely did so to protect democracy, but only for other white Christians. The Ferguson activists were not only right in their protests against police brutality and white supremacy in general, but they nailed the true hypocrisy of our nation. White supremacists want democracy only for themselves as a privilege that would be denied to those deemed not white or Christian enough. That isn't democracy. That's white privilege writ large and evil. And that's our report. Thank you so very much, Janine. As always, a very heartfelt, very much to the point. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we've got Edwin and CISO coming up in just a moment. I want to invite you to tune in to PNN, the Progressive News Network. It's live every Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Western Time. The voices of activists, scientists, and artists produced by Rick Spizak, co-hosted by senior producer Brooke Hines, and also featuring Janine Maloff, Justice Correspondent. PNN, the Progressive News Network. Welcome, Edwin. How are you, sir? Good. Good to be with you, Rick. How are you? Oh, very good, sir. Thank you. Um, I, I'm so glad you could join us. We have had such a rough and tumble week, and uh, I'm sure that uh, there's plenty of things for you to comment on, and I'm going to go ahead and let you launch, sir. Okay. So I think last week um, we were talking just in the the prelude to Super Tuesday 
and there was a, a lot of concern in the air about what was happening after South Carolina um, and what would happen then Super Tuesday. And I think there's been a lot of back and forth over how do we fairly and objectively get a sense of what is or is not viable. There are a lot of people in, in all sorts of camps that are saying, oh, you know, there's fear-mongering. People are exaggerating, you know, how difficult it would be to, to have this program or that program. Um, so, you know, how do we get a sense of it? And I think the absence of that problem is creating a lot of friction, even among the left. You know, there's, there's a, a big divide. So one of the things that I wanted to share with you today is an analysis that I did about the Senate and getting a sense of how that can help inform us of, you know, what, how some, some voters who in South Carolina, we were having trouble understanding, you know, why, why would you make these choices if, if we're proposing Medicare for all, we're proposing environmental justice, if there's so many proposals that we have that would be of such great benefit to especially minority communities, why not take this historic opportunity, um, all of this enthusiasm, and jump on board? And I think one of the things that it would be good to kind of discuss is some of the, the negative things that we want to avoid uh, when, when we speak of the, the black vote. Um, there have been some concerns that they're being treated as sort of low-information voters, and they thought, oh, well, black folk didn't know any better. They, they didn't have enough information to make a wiser decision. Of course, that's fraught with all sorts of problems. You know, you, you're presuming that you know better. Um, you, you're really not sure why they made the decision that they made um, if you're making that assumption. You know, I, I don't know of a study that, that could really show that, that that was the case for South Carolina voters. And so that, that's part of the danger when, when we don't have an objective way of trying to, to understand, you know, what, why would someone behave in a way differently than we on the left would expect them to. Um, and I think you've, you've probably seen the big rift that, that has happened trying to explain South Carolina uh, on the left, um, what are some of the things that, for example, you've heard of? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I've heard uh, the analysis that, uh, you know, uh, certain communities didn't, quote, come out uh, for whether it be uh, uh, Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, that uh, the surprising uh, bubble uh, of, that has come out for support of uh, uh, Mr. Biden, I, I have to admit a certain degree of skepticism. Now, I, I try not to let my, uh, uh, should we say, concerns uh, outweigh my good judgment, but I'll tell you right. why I have a bit of a jaundice point of view. Number one, of course, we hear so often of the irregulars. You hear so often of uh, in minority communities, polls are shut, insufficient ballots, extremely long waiting times, technology failures, 
And I, I have to say, you know, when once, maybe twice, it could be an accident. It could be just a random happenstance. But I'm afraid that way too often the results of these, what I have to call undercounts, turn out to be in favor of one side of the equation. And it's so regular. It's so consistent. Uh, the minority communities are so often visited with what, what we're hearing of three and four hour waits. Now, you know, maybe if you're uh, retired, you could afford, if you wanted to, to wait three or four hours to vote. But most working class people, most people chasing the job, chasing children, chasing their family responsibilities, don't have the leisure to wait three or four hours. So, I, you know, while I can't say I have data in front of me that says this is why, I have to say when over and over and over and over again, consistently we hear about minority polls, minority community polls, minority access to vote, and then they, we are asked to then be surprised if there's a lack of turnout of some community. Well, you know, I, I have never, never, in all my years of looking at political analysis, I have never heard of a <laughs> of voting breakdowns and lack of polls open in, in white communities. I, I've never heard of it. Uh, <laughs> and now, of course, we, we heard the, the, the Iowa situation that was so extraordinary where, they, where new technology was rolled out as if this, this election came upon them as a surprise. No one anticipated having to count the votes. I, it just, it begs the imagination. And I'm afraid what it also does, besides provide us insufficient information, it also undermines the voting integrity. And I wish I would be hearing over and over and over again calls from the Republican Party, calls from the Democratic Party. We can't let this happen. This is a serious thing. This is the way the election works. This is the way the voices are heard. This is the way we tally our votes. And, and it seems like everybody goes, oh, well, like it was a natural disaster. Well, these things happen. Well, polls are automatically closed. Whoops, there wasn't enough printed. Whoops, we're rolling out new technology. I, you know, frankly, I think it's an insult to the intelligence. And I'm not surprised when the numbers don't add up. Or what we, the other thing that we hear way too often is exit polls work for all the races, but the one where there was the sudden overturning of the expectations. So I, I'm a little jaundiced, so I, I, I'm afraid I don't quite take at face value some of these announcements of tallies. We don't have an option. We have to live with the tallies. But I, I tr I'll tell you this, my, my reaction to all of this is to say to my progressive brothers and sisters, whether they supported this person or that person as a means to the goal of throwing out Donald Trump and all his, <laughs> all his evil minions, is I'm with you. I'm with every one of those voices that denounced Donald Trump. And, and you know, the, the beat goes on. Uh, so I'm supportive of my fellow Democrats, regardless of the shading. But I'll tell you what, I'd be a lot more happy with my friends in the Democratic Party if I heard some kind of, this should never happen again. I've never heard it. And that troubles me. Yeah, there's definitely um, 
people who are concerned about um, voter turnout. And when you look at especially Republican, but even there's some some blue states that are not doing as good a job with um, this. You know, we, we had issues in mm-hmm. California, for example. Sure. sure. Uh, so so there's there's, uh, you know, reason for, for there to be concern. And I think here is a good a good cause for a lot of the left to unite, as you, you mentioned, and to say, you know, let's let's investigate. But, um, you know, let's withhold judgment until we we have this investigation done. Um, I think, though, that it it's important to also help take a look at the data and, and say, well, how could we understand? Let's say that, that this is uh, a legitimate or fairly close to legitimate result. Sure, sure. How could this be understood so that we, you know, sometimes I think everyone on the left expected Super Tuesday to, to move very differently. I did. I, I made a a pronouncement. I thought that Bernie was going to do very, very well because of his advantage mm-hmm. in fundraising and in grassroots organizing. I'd, I'd seen a lot of work, so I, I was just expecting a very different result. Um, so what I, I have is I, I did an analysis of what are the, the major spending programs of Bernie and his counterparts, counterparts plans in the Biden campaign. So I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, sure. there's the Green New Deal. There's 16.3 trillion for that uh, in the Sanders. There's 1.7 trillion for green infrastructure with Biden. Um, with Bernie, there's 1.5 trillion for universal health care and I mean universal college and um, I'm sorry, universal pre-kindergarten. Uh, with with uh, Biden, there's $720 billion for uh, teacher pay and pre-K. Um, you know, the Bernie spends $2.2 trillion for a tuition-free public college and university. Biden is only putting in $750 billion for two years. So you have all of these sort of clear, very big programs that, that they're both um, advancing. And then how do you... What do the Senate races then tell us about the support, at least when it comes to candidates? Uh, what, what are candidates willing to risk their campaigns on? And when you look at, for example, Alabama and recently Arizona, uh, both of the you know, leading candidates uh, endorsed Biden. But even beyond that, there's in North Carolina, Erica Smith. Is, is one of the candidates that has the strongest lead over her Republican Senate counterpart. Uh, you're looking at a maybe consistently a 7% lead. And she's one who who's endorsed uh, Medicare for All. So that's, that's a, a plus. But the rest of her, her platform, uh, when you look at her, her webpage, is really more green infrastructure, teacher pay, to your college in the, the Biden mold. Or, and not even fully embracing all of that, but closer to that side. Uh, and actually a little bit more conservative. She's, I love her because she, she all of these bills that she's co-sponsored in the state legislature. She's amazing, Erica Smith. Uh, if you haven't checked her out, um, she's really, really amazing. Um, in Maine, Sarah Gideon, also uh, putting forward a couple of, of steps that are kind of halfway there on green infrastructure, halfway there on paid family leave, 
um, some much smaller sort of token words toward teacher pay and to your college, that sort of thing. She is, though, very much on board with the public option. So what this starts to do is you, you can start to lay out a sort of grid on, okay, where do these are the five Senate races that we have to win in order to win at least 51 seats. We have to keep Alabama, and we have to win at least four other, flip four other seats to, to really get a, a majority, a clear majority of 51. Um, and what it's showing is that within these states, the, the candidates that are willing to take a risk on position and that are polling competitively with their Republican counterparts are not willing to take the chance on the Sanders um, program. And we can, we can speculate as to, you know, why. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who, uh, such a bold program, it's not with, with um, a lot of these candidates are not in spaces that are very progressive. You know, you're talking about Alabama, Arizona, North Carolina, uh, Maine. So it's, it's a, a bit riskier, and you can understand why these candidates are risk-averse. Um, a lot of these candidates, their politics is not really uh, as strongly progressive. Um, like Hickenlooper of Colorado, he, he hasn't really taken a chance on very many positions, not even his green infrastructure um, comment on his webpage. It's, it's very amorphous. There's no real specificity to it. So when you look at, at the vote in South Carolina and in a lot of other places, you can kind of see why they don't see the strong support that you would sort of expect if the entire Democratic Party was ready to push for these bigger plans. And so it's a way of seeing and measuring what is the level of support within the opposing parties in each of these states. And really, what's, that's really the function of the Senate. It, you know, the, the House is the populist branch. It's, it's where you get a lot of innovation. You get a lot of, of populist energy um, that's more aligned to population centers and where, where it is the greatest pop population um, energy. But the Senate is a more conservative state. And it, it gives, it's designed to give you a, a, a poll of how much support does a given state have for different positions. And that's where we, we run into this challenge. Does that make sense of the sort of analysis? Like, okay, oh, this, sure it does. This is where, sure does. where the candidates are. I, I think probably the biggest issue that so many of us progressives take with Mr. Biden, I mean, no one would argue that he is even his worst sins, if you will, allowing me to use a curious term in politics, is is nowhere near the kind of behavior that we see from Mr. Trump. Granted, right. it's just that he has stood so vehemently, so consistently against so many of the issues that we find important, crucial. The, the fracking stand, for instance. But you know, one one must take the bitter with the sweet. Uh, his his curious stand on marijuana, uh, given that he is 
nominally a Democrat of some kind. And, and uh, that's, that's, I think, is what's going to make it difficult. But I think you, you make a valid point that m- much of the nation and many Democrats, uh, certainly a, an important minority of Democrats or, or maybe a, a significant minority of Democrats, 30, 40 percent, who knows, uh, really don't support any kind of changes and, and are very much a business as usual or even, you know, strongly conservative and think that, you know, uh, Social Security that people pay for is, is the entitlement to worry about rather than the Pentagon's entitlements, which no one seems to worry about too much. So, you know, your, your I, points well taken. Yeah. I like how, uh, for example, in the debate, Bernie pushed back against uh, Biden's concern over costs. And, you know, he, he was like, well, how many wars and how much military spending have you have you approved? And, you know, there was no hesitation <laughs> there. So I, I think we make some great and important points um, on the left for, for the, the vision that we have, especially long term of, of what the, the country can be like. You know, on, our prog- on this program, we've we've spoken before on on the need to to balance our our demand tactics with sure. our our election tactics, and to to know that um, as much as we demand things, building agreement in congressional districts, building agreement in states for the things that we believe in um, is critical. So one of the things, you know, I, I don't want to look at this, this analysis as um, this is beyond the power of the progressive movement to change. You know, once upon a time in 2003, when we had Howard Dean running, most of the, the, the states weren't ready to oppose the Iraq war. There was strong support still for the president. Uh, we were able to, to, to organize in a lot of states and change popular opinion. And with that popular opinion, once we we help educate people on the issue, how horrible things were there, we were then through the campaign making Howard Dean DNC chair. He then instituted a lot of the reforms, especially the 50-state strategy. We were able to take that issue and then convert that energy, leverage it into electoral um, mandate which then flipped the Congress. Um, both chambers actually flipped them in 2006 as a result of that kind of organizing. So when we, one of the things that I, I want to make sure that, that we also take a look at is, you know, how, how much have we really been thinking about Arizona and North Carolina and Maine and even Colorado to the point where we can launch a, a primary challenge in these states or have a, a candidate that engage and then win and then take a look at you know throughout this race you know let's 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 reimagine how we could have done this so that we'd be in a different place one of the things we could have done is said we want to make sure that our congressional co-sponsors are increasing as the campaign moves throughout this year you know so that we show that we're building agreement in Congress and in these states and these congressional districts for the, the policies that we advance. And I think if we had done more of that kind of work and retooled ourselves to be that kind of movement, not only would the candidates of the left have fared better, 
you know, but we'd have the real kind of energy that we need. Once you win the election, you know, Obama ran into this. Like, if you don't have that agreement, once you're going into Congress, like, it's not easy. He's one of the most talented people. I think he's going to be the most talented president I will ever live to see. Um, and even he ran into a lot of trouble getting the things that he wanted to done. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I think is so important about trying to really with an open heart and an open mind understand why South Carolina took a look at where, where things were, how much support there were for, for things, and said, you know, we're, we're going to make this choice. Let me, let me get your reaction to something that I've heard so often. Uh, I, I've begun to assume that it's, it's really kind of baked into the electoral analysis, at least of the mainstream media. Uh, again and again, when they interview people, they say, you know, I like Bernie's plan. I just don't like Bernie. Or I agree with Bernie, but he comes off so angry. Uh, or, 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 you know, he's just too old. And, and it's, it strikes me that, that to an extent, this idea of what package is this thing being delivered in has gotten in the way of the message. You know, I stood in the Denver convention when Ted Kennedy demanded that Americans have access to health care. And I watched one Democratic leader after another follow him to the podium and say in one voice, we will have a national health solution. Boy, that plant withered so fast. And we heard so often from important voices in the Democratic Party, leaders who are still there. Well, you know, this is uh, this is a bridge too far. This is, uh, uh, you know, uh, questioning the very underpinnings of the insurance industry. We really can't do that. And and I, I agree with you in large part. And I and I understand why that packaging of what we what there is so much agreement for a common goal is. But I I have to say I'm a little stubborn like the good Senator Sanders, that I, I expect more of my fellow Americans than to say, well, you know, he's got white hair. He's an older man. Uh, you know, ageism and uh, what I'm going to call the photogenic aspect of American electoral politics. Uh, those of us who think deeply on these matters can't Give reality short shrift. I think people like yourself, opinion molders, people who have a voice and, and share that voice, have to keep calling on our better nature. You know, even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, even John F. Kennedy had had plans that they could not fulfill because there was, should we say, a little drag in the chute, you know? Uh, that that mm-hmm. there's not the enthusiasm for these progressive visions, and that the audacity of Kennedy's "Let's go to the moon," uh, and and the audacity of, of FDR saying, 
We need to care for people. We need to have a safety net. It found plenty of opposition, not just in the, should we say, the opposing party, but in his own party, in their own parties. So, you know, I, I know you're not a faint spirit. You know, you're a man who's fought for the right and fought for justice. And uh, thank you. You know, I go ahead. Well, I I think you you make a really good point that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I first heard of Fight for 15, I was at one of the first rallies for that in the country. Mm-hmm. Our good friend. Remember uh, when that was radical? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. I remember the, the winter of 2012 uh, in, in Tampa Bay. We, heard, we had one of the, the first rallies for that. And at the time, it was so, like, it took my breath away. <laughs> it, it, it just seemed so, like, you know, especially in, you're living in Florida. You're really in the trenches. It's it's rough in Florida. Um, so it it, um, it was wonderful that way. But what was great about SEIU's model is that they started with the small group discussion. You know, worker to worker. Let's organize. Let's let's identify a, a space where, and you know, they they hit the the fast food stores. Uh, actually, at that time, it, it was more centered around uh, I think Walmart. Um, but they they started organizing some of the workers, having those conversations. But what was interesting is that they they followed the the classic model of you start with the workers, then you identify the coalition of the willing. What are some some community organizations that can sign on? And then as some of those sign on, where are there places in the country that that begin to show? Uh, after you've done some rallies, that they might be willing to do a local um, referendum on the issue. And then you, you win a couple of the most progressive spaces, right? And then that that leads some candidates. Now that they see that, they, they start running on this. They start trying to make it an issue that that can win um, a city council race or, or the majority of the city council. And you see that going on. But what was interesting also about SEIU is that in 2016, everyone expected them to get behind Sanders, but they didn't choose to make the race about Fight for 15. They did push the candidates hard on the issue, but they didn't make it a, um, uh, what's that called, a single issue. And so this is instructive because what ended up happening is they they did actually hitch their wagon to the, the nominee that was very likely to win the race. And it was, it was really Bernie himself didn't even want to get in. He wanted Warren to run because he knew the odds were really hard and really long. Um, but now we've moved to a point, thanks to their organizing, where it's become so broadly accepted that we're, we're now, now the entire democratic field is, is for the position. So I think that's really instructive in, in how, how to help make change. And I think one of the things that we have to be careful about, and one of the things that has hurt us, is that there are elements on, within our space, within our rank, that have not even, I, I, I think it goes beyond radicalism. I think they're, they're so hard set on, on an us versus them approach uh, that it, it really harms us. It, it estranges people from us. 
And, and this conversation that, that we're having, a lot of it is because we, there are people with really hurt feelings um, that have happened, I don't think as a, major, as a result of the majority of Bernie supporters, but even I've had to engage in the, yo, we, 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 we're on the left, we, we can't treat Warren supporters. There's this one, uh, for example, activist who's, who's dying. Um, I think his name, his last name is Adi, is it Adi Barakan? And when he, he endorsed Warren, I mean, the, the attacks on him were really awful, something that I, I'm not used to feeling shame as a progressive, but I, I really felt shame. I'm like, this, this is not what we are. So as we, as we have these conversations, you know, and as we move into to Tuesday, you know, we've really got to engage with love. And I, I think one of the important things about MLK and, and the nice little reminder twist on that that the Obamas give that, you know, when they go low, we go high. It's not just a, a pragmatic sort of tactical set of, of advice. What MLK was trying to protect the movement from is the danger of of going to the dark side, basically um, prejudicial apathy, what's commonly known as hatred, that it, it can seep into us, this anger. So we've just got to be really careful with that. And I think if we do that, we can come out of this Tuesday stronger, understanding one another, and getting ready to build a movement capable of winning 2020 and capable of, of continuing the work of shifting this nation to the left. I think you make a very good point, but I want to I want to add in one other. I won't say counterpoint because I, I don't think we're we're in any way opposed at all. But I, I, I do want to give you this little little perspective. I started protesting the Vietnam War in 1969 when I was just a teenager. Wow! Because it seemed to me that that the the thin lie of uh, dominoes that they that was being pitched was really a thin veil over racism because every soldier that I met talked so much about the hate and and described saving a country by blowing it up and shooting people and destroying hamlets and it just seemed to me that it was abhorrent that, that freedom fighters like this country was founded by should be fighting with a, with a people and not be imposing on a people, especially with such vehement racism that I saw. Okay. And, and Edwin, I got to share this with you. The thing I, I felt very good about that. I felt very good about standing against racism because it was part of parcel of what Dr. King stood for, and, and also the, the growing women's movement. This, this is all tangled together. And, you know, I saw a funny thing from time to time. Not often, but often enough to be troubling. I heard people angrily yelling for peace. And, and I would look at them, and, and from time to time I would try to say, my friend, you're, you're for peace. You say, you're for peace. I take you at your word. You can't angrily yell for peace. 
You can't be so single-minded, so so laser-focused on what you hate about war that you forget to love your fellow men and women that you're trying to convince. And and the to me the Bernie Bro rings in that same echo chamber. And I have to say, in among the people that I talk to, I have not ever seen a Bernie person or or a, a Warren person angrily denounce the other guys. From time to time they'll they'll say, Well this was wrong or that was wrong but I, I don't hear that hate. And I know people do. I, I, I understand and I hear anecdotal that sort of thing. But I gotta say, there are people who with their enthusiasms forget our common humanity, forget right. the, the the bigger picture because they're so goddamn firm and so convinced in the rightness of their own thing. But you and I, cooler heads, calmer hearts need to continue. And and I refuse to denounce the hotheads, but I will, when given the opportunity, try to remind them that, that we're headed to the same place. Maybe we're not riding hard and fast enough, and, and maybe we're not kicking people out of the way to get there, but we need to find that common voice. And I, I've always heard that voice, that gentle voice, that, that wise voice in you, and that's that's why I'm so happy always to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Rick. You be well. You too. Bye-bye. And we'll talk to you soon. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I have the great pleasure of bringing you an extraordinary poet and storyteller, a man who's been with us before, and a man who has just an eloquent voice, and he, he, he has written a book that you should know about the problems of official art. And, uh, you know, he, he addresses the cause of artists and writers and poets across Ireland, and he essentially critiques the art establishment. And if you're an artist or you've ever dealt with artists, you know that the, the powers that be have a curious impact on them. And I'm going to play him in just a minute, but I do want to play this little, this little welcome to our good friends from the Daughters of Isis first. Daughters of Isis is the ancestor of pharmacology, indigenous sense representing the fragrant memories of our ancestors to provide us the tools of the inner quest, the authentic moment, and to heal the Earth Mother. DaughtersOfIsis.com Wholesale available also. Mention PNN and enjoy a free sample from our apothecary. For your aromatherapy needs, that's DaughtersOfIsis.com And now, our little chat with Kevin Keeley. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring an extraordinary talented storyteller and poet Mr. Kevin Kiley. Kevin, welcome. Rick, you're such you're very gracious and thank you very much. You know, come on, we're all extraordinary and you're extraordinary. Well, it, okay, it takes one to know one. 
you you've got a new book out. You're you've got some new writing, sir. Give us what's the news about Kevin. Well, yeah, there I was kidding with you before we started. So let me get business like. Yeah, first, it's difficult to when one has written a book. It's difficult then to go on and talk about it in a way you're somehow, you know, bashing it about. You're you're not not being fully loving and caring for it, but I'll do my best. I do my best to rise up to my book. Um, this is a book in one line, and not to put people to sleep. It's more to wake more to wake myself up and wake anybody up who's listening. This is a book which um, questions the whole area we all know very well, Rick, about um, institutions and the individual. Committees, committees and the individual. And I would suggest, because I find this in poetry and literature, that there is, I suppose, an unmistakable and traceable tradition through all lands and countries and land masses and oceans. So this book is in the tradition of satirical questioning and political questioning and economic questioning of a particular institution. But I would add that um, while along the streets here, it's become a little bit of an infamous book on the art scene, I have to be honest. Sure, sure. Um, I've had, I haven't had anybody, uh, I have to get a little bit vulgar here for a moment, I haven't had anybody spit at me, but um, <laughs> it's early in the year, yes. Sure. I've had some people who are angry. So it's very easy to outline this. This is a book really about uh, inside people who want to stay inside a particular institution and they want to commandeer their uh, grant monies, which are usually about 90 million, between about 50, 60 million and 90 million. And they designate who gets these monies through a very select and committee, which is really an elitism. So in a way, I'm the good guy. I'm kind of like the Socrates figure. When I meet people who are outside this institution, they're practically clapping me on the back and wanting to buy me free coffee and everything. I mean, I don't know. I don't know well, should, I re- should I register myself as a, as, a, as a public charity now? You know, live off <laughs> live off free coffee and, and two bagels a day. I don't know. You know, there's so much about art institutions that that seem to fall so far away from the artistic spirit. To me, the artistic spirit's about giving, about sharing, about treating your fellow creators with with all due respect, but it seems that art institutions tend to ossify, and as you say, they they become very insular, and unless you're prepared to salute the verities of the time, you're an outsider, and you are outside the circle. <laughs> it's, isn't it? Do you know what's wonderful is to hear you saying all that so clearly. And uh, with my, uh, I suppose I have to call it privileged uh, you know, studies and what I enjoy greatly, you know, reading so many extraordinary writers and poets and reading about artists. I notice this will be, the, if I go back through history, this is the same for Beethoven, Michelangelo, um, Raphael, uh, right back to, now I can't put myself up with any of these people, right back to Socrates, right back to the Buddha, dare I say, right back to, it's a, it's an extraordinary 
it's not a conundrum or it's not a mystery why a collective, which is usually very small, takes over the power structures and dictates then, uh, you know, I have to use the Marxist Hegelian terms, dictates to the masses. And um, in, a, in a way then, we, I mean, I have to, excuse me, accusing you, Rick, we somehow trot along, trot off to their wars, trot off at their command, <laughs> trot off and vote for them. And I'm not being negative, you know, and I'm not being, no. I'm not being, um, one of the things that I found very amusing the other day as a colleague of mine, I can even give you his name, if you like, Fred Johnson, we were talking about this, and he was saying, <laughs> This, of course, elitism is is registered as a psychiatric disorder, as we all know. And I don't want to be smiling because there are people with with genuine mental difficulties. And I'm not, I don't want to be at all misanthropic or inhuman. I have to be careful. And I'm not being misanthropic towards the people who I've named in my book and used their photographs and everything. But um, it is... It is not a mystery. I mean, it's not a mystery to me. I mean, generally, I I, I, I make comments, uh, and I you know I write for newspapers and magazines. I make comments about England and London, and particularly Westminster Parliament. Now, I don't know if they're going to come over here, you know, to my apartment looking at me. They're, they're not bothered by a person by me, but um, even a Parliament like Westminster before it was set up, it was always about two hundred people. 250 people. There's so many books who give this information. And I'm not entering into that area of, you know, conspiracy theories and Illuminati, but I suppose I'm outside the door of that now, but I'm not going to really go into that area for the rest of my life, God help me. But um, it is um, not a conundrum, but I do know it myself now in a semi-public way when I meet politicians and others and when you question them on core issues and I suppose I have got that kind of very very minor access to some of these people now um, there's an instant reaction that they, they're going to protect the information shut you down and they're going to say to you um, wow do you see the weather is picking up it's, well, what, an, what an awful winter we had the weather's, really, the weather's looking good the traffic is looking good <laughs> they, they want to obviously so they're protecting things whereas I'm presuming you and I generally if people are asking me uh, dare I say questions about what I'm meant to know about literature and poetry and these matters I'm willing to give whatever information I have I'm not trying to protect or hide any situation I found myself in a situation where I was invited to participate in uh, in a gallery showing and uh, so of course as, as a, an outside artist I was thrilled and when I was invited into this circle, uh, I began to learn things about those select people who tend to get the projects, tend to get the grants. And the more I heard about it, the less I wanted to be involved. And I found myself ultimately saying, I don't want to be in that group. I, I, I would rather be an unknown and, and not part of this gallery scene than be part of that, that kind of activity. It's just... So I have a ton of sympathy for what your points are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, at the same time as well, and we're in, we're in we're moving into. I think it's the global news. We're moving into um, an, an era of plague. We don't know how long it'll last, and people, I suppose, are going to get very nervous and frightened. 
you know, it's a little bit like an era of some type of a war, except everybody's in this just fighting a, a, a plague. There's been so many plagues and so many. Strangely enough, poets and writers, I've been thinking all week about the number of writers in different eras who've written about plague and written about this particular, this particular area. And I'm not saying that the people aren't immune. God knows you can wake in the middle of the night, you can be beset by all kinds of fears. And it, like what happened to me there, we had not to go off and happened to me there one night that woke up as one some kind of a bog walking around <laughs> the window ledge. And I thought, oh my God, we should really sit down and talk. Why am I terrified of this, you know, this tiny bog? <laughs> Let me ask you a question about the book. Are you hoping to, by illuminating some of these uh, uh, insular uh, thinking, uh, some of these, uh, uh, should we say, narrow perspectives that that tend not so much to support, uh, but but to exclude. Are you hoping that this will touch a nerve and and find a common cause out there? I am no. Besides besides me wandering off and babbling about talking to a ball that's you know a quarter to four in the morning, <laughs> I need I need to I need to show complete uh, act of sanity here. I am extremely deliberate in this Rick. Obviously, I put an awful lot of work into this. I've had people supervise the text. Uh, I have used all of the reports. Uh, I give this a name now. In uh, if you travel to a country called Ireland in the west of Europe. And then if you travel to a city in that country called Dublin, and uh, right in the city centre, if you get to number 70 Marion Square, you will arrive at what's called the Irish Arts Council. And it has a phenomenal, uh, what I would call, um, definitive, very cool embezzlement structure called declared interest. So you have to imagine a monthly board meeting where about 10 people meet and they make decisions. They're a bit like people carving up a huge amount of funding and they're genuinely uh, giving a kind of a press release that they worked exorbitantly hard and long to make these decisions. But to cut to the chase, my book uses all of their fiscal reports from 1951 up to 2020. And then they are funded, of course, um, right up to 2025. And I am in the process of waiting to meet the uh, Minister for Arts and Culture and Heritage. And I want to meet what would be the equivalent of the Prime Minister of the of Ireland. It's called the Taoiseach, which is a very old Celtic term for the word chieftain or leader. And... Um, so I definitely want, uh, I'm going to have uh, what I would call, you know, get some exercise out of this. I'm not in the least perturbed uh, because one of the reasons I know this is I've spoken to legal experts. So what I'm quoting in the book is actually, uh, you know, photoshots from the reports. I have photoshot all the people um, and I have photoshot all the amounts of money and I've photoshot and used all of their, what we would call, I won't call it technical know-how, because it would seem to me that it's very easy <laughs> to get 90 million, get get a coffee machine and decide over a month who's it going to go to. Like, I mean, it's, it's almost like deciding who's going to eat and who's not going to eat. So the, so a lot. that's why there's, um, I hope, 
a surfeit of mockery and satire in this because it's the, the sort of defensive uh, mechanism I needed for having to go down into this hellish, awful um, kind of, you know, quagmire. And I'm not being misanthropic. Uh, of course, there are loathsome people, you know, like anybody who's screwing the system for their own gain. They're loathsome, selfish. Uh, I don't want to use the B word. But the thing that I find very amusing is I did, and I'm proud of this as well because it gives me credibility. I worked for these people, of course. And I, when you look through the reports, you can see over 30 or 40 years the amount of... Uh, actual money that I got but what I'm pleased to say is that if you multiply the number of years uh, multiply the total that I got it comes out at a very small amount per year (laughs) so so I feel I feel you know a bit of a I can't make any blasphemous comment I feel a bit of a a Francis of Assisi you know dealing with with it with it I'm not I'm not one of their I, I'm not a, I didn't even steal the money for the stamps, you know, as it were. And I, well, I don't want to moralize either, but yes, I, w- I would like a national discussion. I want a national discussion. I want... We recently had one of the um, sports boards. Rather amazingly, one of the sports boards had its entire board removed because of um, what you call, you know, dipping in the cookie jar or fiddling. It's a very, It's a very, very... <laughs> It's as old as highway robbery. I mean, there's nothing alarming in that. But what is new about this, and what I'm pleased in the reception, um, some of it word of mouth, and then I was very pleased to see that the Sunday Times, which is the newspaper that comes out of London, uh, they, of course, you know, declared I was a madman and a maniac. And uh, I was very pleased with that, because I think that's, <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best kind of review. And then somebody on the street said to me... Um, you know, you should you should take up some anarchist position. You know, you I should be there. You know, now which of course is, would be alarming, except that you know I'm not I'm not the kind of person who would throw a stone at their window or anything. You know, but um, I'm not that kind of a character either. And I'm not. Um, there's a responsibility, of course. I'm not um, uh, trying to provoke anybody to take anything other than what I call you know action and print. But said that, there's a lot of people I've heard from, and I'm glad to say some of them are academics, and and I don't want to uh, lose (laughs) my friend's base, is that they're inclined to say, Rick, oh, you know, you're great to put yourself above the parapet. You're great to say all this, put it in print, make this available for people to read, you know, for the price of a couple of cups of coffee. Um, But then, you know, when you would say to them, uh, would you because I'm not going to uh, give much more time than I have them doing a book about it they won't put themselves above a parapet either so a lot of the raison dates are producing the book is that for years I've gone round I'm on the art scene I'm having a great time I'm very fortunate very privileged I mean they should really put me sweeping the streets or something something you know, they should they should put me out deliver you know emptying refuse trucks or something for two or three years I would under a totalitarian regime of course be arrested my book taken off the, the circulation system and I'll be thrown into something. This is what is sinister about questioning these monoliths. But it goes on for all time and it'll probably have to go on. Uh, so the answer uh, is 80 million yeses to your question. Yeah, I want to see these people investigated and I want to see them uh, it's very hard to make people accountable because jobs are tied up, their properties are tied up, 
And I'm not into any kind of sadistic, you know, I don't want to see people begging in the streets. But I have noticed some people I've met, and they will come up to me, as I said, and didn't spit at me. Uh, I'm trying to work out the ethics on my part. You know, am I trying to shut down their job and shut down their income? Uh, my answer immediately now, I don't want to appear a moralist or, or, or put myself above their elitism. My answer is that we must have open discussion, you know. If this is a democracy, if we're having any kind of civilization, any kind of, you know, people organizing a picnic or people organizing a walk, there has to be some type of evocations to justice and some type of regulations. Uh, so to me, they are uh, what I would call creators of a type of chaos and I do like you. I do. I don't want to go off uh, up into an artistic pulpit, but um, I do think that many artists can survive. Many poets have survived horrendous regimes, but I can't at all, you know, touch the suffering and incarcerations that certain poets and others have had to go through for what for their particular statements and poems. I think of one. I think of um, Osip Mandelstam. I was looking at him a few weeks ago. You know, who wrote some poems against Stalin, and he was thrown into one of those—he was thrown into one of those awful camps in Kalma. And sure. So, so it's. Um, I think things have become very. I'm off helping a guy launch a book in a few weeks' time, and he sent the book to me, and I noticed that his his work has got very political, and I was reading it there under the lamp and enjoying it, and I thought, God, is everything getting very, 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 very political now? Is it, where will we find the, the, the lyricism and the beauty in politics? Well, when, when politics evolves such that it crimps the creative space, it pushes in on the creative mind and the creative spirit, that's where I think the artist is called upon to address those constraints imposed by tyranny. No, completely. There's many. I suppose I, I'm fond of my education in this area, and I'm fond of my, I, I, you know, I feel I'm not exactly a very brilliant or very articulate person. I feel that things I've written, they're somehow, it's as if there's some doppelganger, there's some more exalted me than the me here sitting at my desk, you know, even though it is a magnificent day out there. But um, I agree. I was thinking of many, I can, I can, throw this out at you. I'm thinking of somebody like Chopin who rose up against his regime and had a concert. Sure. The concert stopped playing and he had to move to Paris. Uh, there's so, so many, many examples. There's examples in America. I was only just thinking this, uh, this afternoon. Um, you know, during the Vietnam War, Lorraine Niedecker, so many poets contested the war. So many writers contested the war. Um I know that Robert Lowell, a lot of people don't like him. They think he's a kind of a New England snob. But he did actually put himself up as a conscientious objector in World War II. And he yeah. found himself jumped into a jail. Uh, I'm very fond of my American brothers and sisters who take on those causes. And without, of course, it's very, very dangerous to get into any type of 
messianic self-righteous position you know oh my god i'm outing these wrongs aren't i such a great person aren't i such a fantastic you know you know figure going around with a sackcloth and ashes and <laughs> you know like jeremiah i mean i'm not a, how can i attack a prophet like jeremiah but it's just that um it's always been i was very privileged i remember listening to uh, many lectures uh, and he's still a great hero of mine and people don't know enough. People don't know a lot about his background. A bit like they don't know a lot about Shakespeare. But um, Plato was a very, very strong influence on me. I know many of his um, not his what's called the party uh, uh, dialogue, where people are just sitting around a table drink, drinking wine and talking yeah. about love and gossip. But the 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 dialogues that discuss uh, the Docklands in Athens, the Gorgias where Socrates goes around saying to people, who owns those docks? I mean, how many ships come in there every day? Um, who's responsible for all these goods and services? Who's buying the grain? Um, so that's that ticks the box and that Plato was writing about extremely political things. And then what I remember hearing and still recall, even if the, the professor has become a shadowy figure in memory, I remember him saying one day as... Uh, a bell used to ring when they'd lectured for 55 minutes. He said there's one very important point about Socrates is that he wanted the state and the city to agree on what language means, to agree on definitions. This is the whole meaning of humanitarianism, justice, civilization. You know, to agree on the weights and measures, the currency, the profit, profit motive, the, the rules of trading, the rules of communication with everybody, the rules of courtesy, the rules of ceremony. So these things are... Um, I'm not in a state of doom that our civilization is breaking down, but we do at the moment, and I hope they're not going to come knocking on my door. We have got a very bad scatter of rulers. You know the usual suspects. We have an appalling uh, group of people I have a fantasy of sitting them all down uh, with artistic people and giving all of us a chance to just give them a lecture. You know, I don't mean to talk down to them, but just give them a, a five-hour seminar, you know, from the, from the artistic perspective. Speaking of which, let me ask you this. You know, we've heard the political analysis, we've heard the economic analysis and impacts Tell me, what is your poet's view of the Brexit situation? Because I believe a poet brings something special to the conversation. I, I, uh, my own voice of the Brexit is uh, one of, I think, excitement, because Brexit, in, in my education, Rick, is very, very like the... Uh, super unifications of Europe. Now, I mean, you have to take the good with the bad. You had the super unification of the European landmass under the Romans. You had it under Charlemagne. You had it which transferred. But when you go behind those regimes, you see, you have the, you know, of course, I don't want to mention the more, the darker ones, you know, but there were, of course, certain you know, darker combinations of archipelago kinds of countries. But Brexit essentially is a sort of economic, meant to be ideally the knights of the round table with this 27 countries. And the phenomenal thing was that in the middle of this group identity and group economics, 
on an economic level, and I have to show my ignorance and naivety here, but I can show as I go around my country and I've gone around England and France and Italy in the last years and Spain, is that many, many what you would call industrial programs and infrastructure programs were collectively paid for by this, you know, pool. This now is completely trivial economics that I'm yeah, that I'm giving out to you. So in that respect, Brexit. Uh, uh, shows that England had a sort of nervous breakdown about its identity and enlarged its uh, dislike of all the colonials who live in England and has really precipitated a great amount of uh, extraordinary excitement in Scotland and in Ireland because we see that England in a way wants to become England again. But, of course, it's a fantasy if England wants to become this superpower. Uh, because England, when you look at it, uh, when you I always do this. I have one on my wall. When you look at a map of the world, England and Ireland are very, very small countries. You know, they're, Even though England has financial clout. So Brexit, in a way, uh, I have to, I could, I, if I can speak for Irish people, people with Irish passports, Irish people are absolutely thrilled that London has made this crazy move of wanting to establish their identity uh, within Europe, of course. They can't move the island of England, you know, down down beside Australia or, or you know, or, I mean, there's a lot of people in the pubs in Ireland who'd like England to disappear down its own plug hole, you know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of anti-English feeling, not, not from me, but the idea of England having left Get Brexit Done was their slogan, but now they're still 20-something miles from France, and they have to set up a whole series of new trade deals. So if you're buying an English car or an English chicken or an English block of cheese, um, it's going to cost a vast uh, amount of money, so you're not going to buy it. You're gonna, we're going to buy a French cheese or an Irish cheese or a Spanish cheese. So it, there's. I was only talking to somebody last night uh, who, who was a kind of economic knowledge, and he was saying to me, Kevin England have to take various knockout punches from this. They can't assert themselves as whatever they are, the seventh, eighth, or fifth, or sixth superpower. They're not. So that's the definite view of the, the journalists I would know more than a handful and others and the articles that are being written, is that Brexit was a, a very deranged decision. And I'm not the only one saying that. There's many people of the opposing parties in London who didn't want to, as they say, do a Brexit. It's hard to believe, in my opinion, how uh, the parochial nationalism brings any any good fruit to, to England. And it would seem that they're really turning their back on a larger community. And I, I agree. I don't think there's any, any anything to be gained except kind of a a faint self-importance that, as you say, is is fruitless. Let me let me turn to another part of of uh, your life and your world. Um, I'm wondering, have you written any poetry lately or any short stories? I have. What's uh, entertaining me and more than entertaining me and, and making me laugh because I'm, I need to stay light about it. I'm now turning my attention uh, backwards and forwards to writing a long epic poem. Wow. Yeah, on the, it's it's quite uh, um, 
uh, it's very hard to it's very hard to uh, assert this. I mean, to myself, because primarily that's where it's beginning first. Writing a very very long poem about the Thirty Five Years' War in Ireland, and I've noticed that because I'm been very fortunate to be asked to work and do workshops in what's called the six counties of Ireland, or if one is a type of, you know, Republican, you call it the six occupied counties of Ireland. And I was born in those counties. So what's strange is that English nationalism has brought out uh, the six counties, which is owned and rented and paid for by London. Uh, what has come out through the cracks now is that London actually wants to leave. They don't want to pay for this. They don't want to pay all this welfare, and they don't want to pay into an area that's not going to be economically self-dependent. So it's a huge drain on the English coffers. And it would seem, and it is uh, not seems, but as a reality, that the island of Ireland now, with Brexit, has become an economic island. So basically, when you have a cattle or sheep in the six counties they're going to have to really go into the mainstream of European products. They're going to have to be a European product, not a British product. So that's that's the type of shorthand for us. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what England will, will have to do with its agricultural produce because it will have to go through all kinds of tests and all types of embargoes before it goes on to the land mass of Europe. You can imagine the way America doesn't want to take any foodstuffs from us. And, uh, you know, with a plague on at the moment now, I'm not, I'm not being foolhardy or foolish, but I can no. imagine that these embargoes are, it's now what we call embargoes on people, as you would have in a medieval time, you know, the Black, sure. the Black Death or the, the great uh, influenza epidemic after the, the, the First World War. So... There's a strange type of um, historical karma visited on London that they made a, made a very bad decision at a very, very bad time. And uh, anyone who is a bully, you see, in, in Irish folklore, England is called John Bull, John the Bully, because of the, uh, you know, various genocides visited on the Irish race. There's absolutely no hysteria in saying these statements. These are absolutely true. But um, it's very easy now to open up our magazines and newspapers and see these somewhat we're not we're not we're not a warfaring type of people and we tend to be kind of gentle but we can be very vicious in our literature and satire and it's usually aimed you see at the john bullies it's very 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 strange you know so our newspapers now i know one of these newspapers i know the editor who has a newspaper called phoenix you will tend to find these gross <laughs> cartoons, you know. <laughs> they always do them against, uh, I don't call them the royal family, I call them the Windsors. And uh, we feel very entitled to do gross cartoons of this nature and article. I, wouldn't, I don't write this kind of hateful stuff, but... Um, it's a problem because England has has got its, its most beautiful country, beautiful rivers, beautiful mountains. Uh, Irish people love all the emigrants and colonial people who live in England, but it's the the type of snobbish English person that brings out people's ire. That's what happens, merry old England, at the moment. I mean, they. I even heard somebody uh, last week that wrote an article talking about England re rejoining the EU after you know a certain amount of time with jobs. <laughs> there are so many. There are so many um, 
and I don't want to get into it. I mean, there are. I it sound. I sound like a, a person who's been sycophantic. I there's some people I know here in Ireland. They're English people, and we can of course make jokes about this. You know, just about just about socially acceptable jokes. But generally speaking, um, England has got such a sordid <laughs> history uh, uh, in these parts of the the world where. If you if you see somebody laughing about an English person who's just left a cafe, you kind of say, "Oh, tell me, what 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 did you say? What did you say to him? You know, I mean, I hope you I hope you made it hot and heavy. You know, I hope you were, you know." So that this, I think Johnny and Jay, an Englishman, when they come to Ireland, they have to understand that we had two of those Windsors over here visiting during the week. It's of course a way to build up tourist figures, and. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go out the street waving a flag. You know, I, I, I have to get on my own business. But I do know that certain newspapers were saying, "Why are they here? Why are they? You know, why are they causing all this? You know, who are they? What are they? You know." So, but obviously, of course, countries don't want to be bellicose. We have to get on with them, and they have to go on hating and getting on with us. <laughs> well, sir, thank you so much for the chat. Why don't you tell us the name of your book again so we can look for it? I will indeed. It's called. Um, I'm going to give the address because I'm so fond of these people. It's uh, on the cover of the book is number seventy, and if you happen to be in Ireland, um, it's seventy Marion Square. Do drop in. There's a public office. Ask them for a copy of their most recent report. Mention my name and tell them that um, <laughs> you're a great, great friend of Kevin Kiley. You want a free cup of coffee, a free million and a half euros to fund yourself. From the Arts Council Immortals, is the title of the book. <laughs> Arts Council Immortals, Marion Square, who um, get free money, live off free money, and God knows, I don't know what they do all day. They, they've no interest in art, poetry, literature, music. I think they probably play cards for peanuts or something all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, thank you so very much. An honor and pleasure to speak to you again. Be well, my friend. Rick, you are a fantastic um, American. You see, there's still Irish people who say fantastic Americans. So there you are. We're we're working for you. <laughs> Take care, Thank my friend. Thank you for Bye -bye. your invitation. I'm very, very, very humbled and honored. Thank you very, very much. Have a wonderful evening and day. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.